Uh, Revelation chapter 18. John writes, after these things, I saw another angel coming up, down out of heaven. He had great authority and the earth was given light by his glory. He called out with a loud voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a prison for every unclean spirit and a prison for every unclean bird and a prison for every unclean and hated beast. For all the nations have drunk from the wine of her adulterous desire and the kings of the earth committed adultery with her. And the merchants of the earth became rich from the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Because her sins have reached heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back even as she has paid. Pay her back double for what she has done. In the cup that she mixed, mix her a double portion, as much glory and luxury as she gave herself. Give that much torture and grief to her, because in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. For this reason, her plagues will come on a single day, death, mourning, and famine. And she will be burned in fire, because the Lord God who judges her is powerful. The kings of the earth who committed adultery and lived in luxury with her will weep and mourn for her when they see the smoke from her burning. They will stand far away because of terror at her torment and say, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for your judgment came in a single hour. The merchants of the earth also weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. A cargo of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, Scarlet fabric, every kind of aromatic wood and ivory article, and every article made of precious wood, brass, iron, and marble. Also cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, high quality flour, grain, cattle, sheep, horses, and carriages, as well as bodies and souls of people. The fruit your soul desired has left you. All your costly and splendid things have passed away from you. No one will ever find them again. The merchants who sold those things were made rich by Babylon will stand far away out of terror at her torment. They're going to weep and mourn saying, woe, woe to the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls because such great wealth was made a wasteland in a single hour. Every ship captain, captain and all the ocean travelers and the sailors and those who make their living on the sea stood far away and cried out when they saw the smoke rise from her burning. They said, who is like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out as they wept and mourned, saying, woe, woe to the great city by whom all who have ships on the sea were made rich from her treasures because she has made a wasteland in a single hour. Rejoice over her heaven. Also you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has judged her for the judgment you received from her. The mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone, and as he threw it into the sea, he said, this is the way Babylon, the great city, will be overthrown with violence and will never again be found. The sound of harpists and musicians, flutists and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No craftsman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again because your merchants were the great ones of the earth. Because your witchcraft led all the nations astray and the blood of prophets and saints was found in this city along with the blood of those who were slain on the earth. 
Okay. So there's a lot going on in that chapter, but it's really one thing that's going on. Uh, what does the angel announce about Babylon the Great in verse one? Yeah, Babylon has fallen. Who did we say in chapter 17 is Babylon? Rome. Rome. It is, uh, it is the Antichrist. And, and we can add in here, you know, any anti-Christian churches. They are all included in Babylon the Great. Uh, so looking at verse 2 and following, the purpose of this seeming digression is to heighten the emotional impact of the fall of Babylon. Uh, just like the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple was the most traumatic event in the Old Testament era, so the corruption of the visible church during the New Testament era is the most traumatic event for us. Now, much of this imagery of Babylon the Great would have been familiar to the people that John is initially writing to, that, that first century Jewish Christians. Uh, they knew the Old Testament prophecies like Ezekiel 26 to 28. We're not going to read that because that's three long chapters, but you can read that on your own. Uh, there are other judgments in the Old Testament too. Uh, for example, just like God is destroying Babylon here in the same way he destroy, destroys Tyre because of its ungodly attitude and pride and arrogance. So chapter 18 doesn't add any new information about the prostitute. It just emphasizes the greatness of her glory as the Antichrist and therefore the greatness of her fall. So again, verse two, so it pictures Babylon kind of like a prison. It says it num numerous times that there are demons uh, there. Uh, it's a place fit only for demons because her inhabitants revel in sinful pleasures and abundant luxury. Verse four, what's the warning for believers? Yeah, so what, what do believers need to do? Stand fast. Stand fast and get out. So applying that to us, if we see false teachings, what are the things that we need to do as strong Lutheran Christians? Okay, we work on converting them. What else? Pray for them. Yeah, get away from them. Okay, so exactly. So we stay stay away. So I had just shared before Bible study this morning on Facebook, the uh, sermon series and Bible studies we're doing right now during Advent on wokeness. Uh, I haven't listened to Pastor Bauer's sermon from last Sunday, but everyone I've talked to said it was really good. And hopefully you'll think the same thing with my sermon on wokeness. And I had... Uh, you know, people compliment me too. Uh, and Pastor Bauer did too uh, in Bible study. He said, I commend Pastor Zelling for taking on this topic. Because I'll be honest, I'm terrified. Because you're, you're putting yourself out there, putting the church out there uh, for people to come down and hammer on us because we're going to be talking about wokeness 
and critical race theory and the way that uh, we are looked down on as white people, uh, how black people are looked down on as victims, that's critical race theory, looking at lesbianism and homosexuality and transgenderism and all these things. But the whole point of that series and the reason I bring it up here is we need to get out of that woke theology and part of getting out of it is then speaking against it. And that's what's you know, Babylon the Great. I think you could put wokeness and everything involved in it as part of Babylon the Great. Understanding Babylon the Great primarily is the Antichrist, but it's also any kind of anti-Christian teachings. It seems like you know, there's a lot to do against like materialism in here. You know, it's, they listed all these things um, that are considered um, given by Babylon the Great, you know, all these gold, silver, precious stones and everything. So it seems like it's Babylon the Great is almost representing the whole world as far as yeah. anything to do away from God's teaching and just more, more addicted to what's going on in the world. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, Larry's talking about the wealth that Babylon the Great has. Well, why? So there's two reasons, at least two reasons why Babylon the Great has so much wealth. What are those? Sure. And, and then they, add, they have so much too. Uh, you know, we had said that, you know, Babylon the Great, the Antichrist is the Pope. Well, someone recently was telling me about how uh, she is a young person, probably her late 20s, is a member of the Catholic Church. At least she thought she was. But she recently got a letter from the, her Catholic Church saying that she wasn't a member there. You know, their membership, you know, their churches do different membership things than, they, than we do as Lutherans. But she said, I come all the time and I contribute. Well, they said they were looking at her contributions. And because they were looking at her contributions and she's not using her envelope, she's just putting in cash. They felt that she wasn't contributing enough and therefore she wasn't a member. And I, and I told the mom, because her mom was very upset about it. Mom's about my age. And I said, I know that this may go on other places, but I knew that our Wells churches in the Cincinnati area, which is a very Catholic area, that they would put ads out there saying, we'll baptize your children for free. Because in the Catholic church, you pay for your baptism, you pay for your wedding, you pay for your annulment. So there is that collection of, of money. So that's one thing. And, and I think you see that in not just the Catholic church, but any church that has false teachings, they often seem to have a lot more money than we do in the, in our Wisconsin's and the churches. Part of that is we're Christians are, are sinful and we don't give historically. Uh, I, I mentioned that to pastor Natsis. I said that who's holding our call now. And I said that I had mentioned it to one of the pastors while he was holding our call that he was coming from a congregation that had more money. And I said, I'll be honest with you. Water of life will always struggle to pay for two pastors, but we'll always pay for two pastors. We'll, the, the, 
people here will always support their call workers. They do it fantastically. Uh, but I said, I challenge our people that if we typically give two and a half, three percent, that's what most Christians give. If we are a typical church and giving two and a half, three percent, what can we do if we double that? Or if we give a tithe of that? Now think of what we're doing, uh, what we can do in God's kingdom. I think, Paul, you were going to say something? Well, no. When, when I was Catholic, at least at that church, you must have all that different things. But they have the standard, you know, you need to put in this much. Mm. And if you're if you do whatever there's the, the amount is, then your kids can go to school there. And then, of course, that was a long time ago. And you didn't have to pay extra as long as you were contributing. And if, and if you were contributing, then you didn't have to pay. Mm. Although a lot of people would give the pastor or priest uh, something for baptisms and, and that kind of thing. But they do look at the bottom line. And they used to publish it Yeah. every year. We used to publish it here. Yeah, Epiphany used to. Yeah. When I was a kid, I'd open that once a year, and there'd be all the giving from the top down to the bottom. And I, I heard that you you had a special offering for communion too. Yes. Yes. That, that bothered me yeah. more than anything. Yes. I think you were probably the one that brought it up. So yeah, those are the things that. Oh man, is we had the casting crowds. Uh, one of the grandkids said, Stuart, do you have to pay to take right. And Auntie got the past. And so and so that money, but what's the second reason? And that leads into the next couple of questions. What's the other reason why Babylon the Great has so much wealth? One is, like Mary said, they take it, but who are they connected with? And that you go have to go back to chapter 13. But even chapter 17, who is Babylon the Great riding on? No, it, there's a reason why she has so much money. Babylon the Great, if you look at chapter 17, she's riding on a beast. And who is that beast? Or what is that beast? No, the, dragon, the dragon of chapter 12 is Satan. But Satan is working with two allies. Yeah, the beast of the is the government that persecutes Christians, not just government. Okay, I always have to be careful, you know, uh, because government can be good. It's, you know, we submit to the government, but government can be evil. It, it can be uh, harming and persecuting Christians. And chapter 13 are these two beasts that come out of the sea. That's the apostate government. And then uh, the beast out of the earth is the apostate church. Chapter 17, now the beast out of the earth is now pictured as Babylon, this, Babylon the Great, this woman. So the imagery changes. But she's riding on the beast out of the sea, which is the apostate government. So now the government isn't, in this chapter isn't pictured as uh, a beast, but it's, that's where she's getting her wealth from because she is working alongside of the governments of the world and they're getting their wealth so then I have a yes ma'am if you if you want to believe that god provides for you and gives you all this stuff and then he takes it all away in this thing here this chapter 
Yeah, I don't think this is talking so much about taking it from you. I think it's just explaining the wealth that she has. So that gets to the question of uh, what will the kings of the earth say when they see the downfall of the prostitute? Well, but they're the ones in chapter 17 that took her down. So the, so the beast turns on the woman. Yeah, yeah. They're going to mourn her loss because they're no longer sharing her luxury. So the beast is the government. Babylon is the Antichrist church. So the government's going to turn on the churches. Yeah. The anti-Christian churches. And I think, again, you, you'll see that in the end time, but you see that throughout history, right? Is I guess you can see that even in, we've said like the, the beast out of the earth would be like a communist government, like China, like Russia. So they'd be turning on the churches, but not the people. Right. They'll all be gone. And so that's exactly. So you look at China and Russia, what did they do? They turned on the Christian churches, so they're not there, but they turned on the apostate churches too. So they're gone. There are no, you don't have Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, Hindus or Buddhists or even Muslims in those countries. You know, you hear about the, was it the Uyghurs? I think they're Muslim Chinese. And those are in concentration camps in China. You don't want to hear, uh, hear about that in the, you know, the major news network. But if you listen to alternative news, you'll hear about, about that. So those apostate governments will wipe out every religion. And, and that's, so they'll start with the Christian religions, and then they'll turn on the anti-Christian religions. So in just like I say, you'll see this in great detail on the last days, but you see it in the end times now too, okay? Uh, so that's what the kings of the earth will say. What will the merchants say? Yeah, they're upset because now the apostate church, the Babylon the Great isn't buying their goods either. What will the sea captains and the sailors say? Same thing. They're going to mourn because they benefited, they profited from Babylon the Great. You're saying that all these people profited from the church? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if, you know, if the church, you know, these false churches, they're just, uh, you know, if they're shipping things, you need your, your shipping containers on your boats back then, just like today. And you're getting, and then you're shipping that stuff. So you're getting paid from it. But now, the apostate church isn't doing anything because they've fallen and now everything's stuck in port or no one's buying anything. Which is what we have going on. Which we have going on right now. But not saying it's because of the apostate church, but you can see that stuff stuck, exactly. So verses 11 through 19, uh, just to review, the merchants and the artisans of the world are enriched by business with the false church uh, when the church lives in luxury. Again, you can think of uh, great cathedrals, 
art and music, vestments and jewels and the pomp. And then uh, they're not going to be shipping those things anymore. So although each of the three groups mentioned will mourn the prophets, the prostitutes doom, they'll have to give glory to God. So what do all three confess about the prostitute? Verse 10, what are they going to say about the prostitute? What are they amazed at? Yeah, they're going to be amazed at how quickly she fell. But then the sea captains express the joy of God's people free over the fall. And look at verse 20. Rejoice over her heaven also you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has judged her for the judgment you received from her. When you brought up the beast, mm -hmm. I read chapter 17 that thing. I thought that's where I left out. There's one thing in there that um, you can explain it. That, uh, verse 8. It says, those who make their home on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life, will be amazed when they see the beast because he existed is no more and will exist again. Yeah, so about uh, existing and is no more and will exist, exist again. So uh, let me just review. I, I remember talking about, I don't think I mentioned it last time. Uh, what, that's verse verse eight it does say a mind that has wisdom is needed here <laughs> yeah chapter 17 oh. you're saying the beast is governance right Yeah. Boy, I remember it's not in my notes, but I do remember reading on that. So it's uh, that uh, it had fallen. So it was, it had existed. So it, it came into being. Let's see. So. Yeah. Those who make their home on the earth will be amazed when they see the beast. So that must be the beast out of the sea. Yeah, so it's talking about that. I think, I think that's what it's talking about is that the Roman government, because that's the one that's going to be in power when John is writing this, that it existed, so it came into being, and then is no more. So he's saying it's going to be wiped out, but then it will exist again. So I think I remember reading that. So the Roman, go the, the government that is persecuting Christians as the beast out of the sea, that it is pictured here as the Roman government and exists. But then it's going to go out of existence, but then it's going to rise up as other governments in the history. Does that make sense?
Kind of, like they would have been the major power of that time. And they were the only real government that was persecuting Christians at the time. Right. And they made like 400 BC power. Yep. Yeah. And then that whole idea of persecuting Christians came back in the form of other governments. Correct. Like China and Russia. Correct. Yep. Yeah, good question. Okay, uh, when we get back to chapter 18. Uh, going to chapter 18, verse 24. What is the ultimate reason the Antichrist will be destroyed? Yeah, yeah. So they killed, they killed the prophets because the Antichrist persecutes and kills God's prophets and saints. And there we can think of Jesus' words to the false church of his day. Uh, the religious leaders of Jerusalem and Israel had killed God's prophets for centuries. And because of this, they were held accountable for the blood of God's people. Matthew 23 verses 33 to 38. And so now the same thing is going to happen to the false church of the New Testament period, that because she has persecuted pastors, teachers, and Christians, now God is going to wipe her out. So the last question for this chapter that I have for you is the people who mourn the death of the, pros of the prostitute were amazed at how quickly she was destroyed. But why is this facet of God's judgment a special comfort for us as God's people. Why was the, the destruction of the prostitute, great Babylon, or Babylon the Great, why was that comfort for the Christians to whom John is writing? Why is it a comfort for Christians throughout history? Why is it a, Christ, a comfort for us now? Yeah, but why would that give us comfort? That wasn't, I think that was my Advent sermon, wasn't it? My midweek Advent sermon. Uh, one, of my, one of my seventh graders told me yesterday in class, yes, that was a really good sermon Wednesday night. I said, good. What did I talk about? He said, I don't know. <laughs> but it was really good. Uh, uh, I thought it was good. But it was Psalm 24. You know, the king of glory comes. And that was a kind of a neat thing that... Uh, the, the hymnal committee did of taking that refrain from the king of glory comes in 363 and putting it as the, the familiar refrain, or at least the I verses of, to get I know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, uh, so, but that the king of glory comes, like Irene said, ultimately Christ wins and we are vindicated. Uh, there, and there's not going to be a long drawn out battle. Uh, the Antichrist will be destroyed in one hour, not a literal one hour, but it's just saying in, in terms of time, because we've seen that uh, time in Revelation, you know, that our time of persecution is described as, I think, three and a half years, 42 months, a time, time, times and a half. So if you think of we're being persecuted for three and a half years, 
you know, so far 2000 years. And then the Antichrist, the one who is leading the persecution is going to be destroyed within one hour. So it's, you say Antichrist, are you referring to Satan? Nope, I'm referring to the apostate church. But it's just saying is, you know, she brought out her, her persecution on us for a long period of time, but it's not when Christ comes and he brings his righteous wrath, as Revelation points out, I think that's in chapter 19, he brings his wrath, that's it. Okay. We're talking about all these countries that are atheist countries. Right. Right. What do you think of the Advent season? Do you think of that as a happy time or a sad time? So is Advent time a happy time or a sad time? I'll let, let you answer first. How would you answer Irene's question? Because Advent is all about preparing for Christ's coming. <laughs> I'd be happy because it means that there is hope for us. Okay. I'll give my answer, but I want to ask you why you're asking that question. <laughs> this, this, well, I, I was at choir last night and walking out, I saw the bulletin for this Sunday. And I didn't like the picture of John the Baptist. Well, it's it's angry. Yeah, he's angry. It's it's, it's I, and I don't think of that as Advent. I think of and I thought, why would you choose a picture like that? That was what went in, that's what went through my mind. Yeah. But I I because I, I saw it and I I didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. John is and I and I chose because that's the one. That, yeah. Well, that's the one that I have for. You know, the artist who, uh, Edward Rojas, who was a Missouri Senate guy, he's really good. That's the one that's appointed for this I Sunday. Realize, I didn't even realize it was John the Baptist. Yeah. But whoever it was, it was very angry. Yeah, it's John the Baptist, and he's like this. And it's uh, from the text of, uh, you know, his ministry, you know, calling people in the gospel lesson for Sunday, you brood of vipers. So he's not going to be happy while he's doing that. But two of the... Two of the four Sundays in Advent is about John, John's message. And it's not a happy message. So I would answer the reason, you know, what I would say about Advent is it's, it's not a happy season. It's a, it's a penitential season. Uh, just, like, just like Lent is. It's a time of preparation. And the way we prepare for Christ's coming is Jesus First is John's message, and then is Jesus' message is repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. And repentance is not a, a happy time. And that's why, this is inside baseball, is this is why I, I'm wearing my uh, cassock, just because it's cool. But also because it's black, that's why I'm wearing it for the Advent and Lenten seasons, is because of that, just to have that imagery of penitential. And that's talking about penitential season. So Pastor Lightning, I'll have to see if he's growing his beard because he said that he grows his beard. It's his penitential beard. 
during Advent and Lent. So it's actually a season now where you know out of the 12 months of the year, more Christ more celebrated in song and you know everything else than around Christmas time. You know, I mean that's people don't talk about Jesus during the during the year except at Christmas time and talking about baby Jesus and Right. Yeah. Well, the world, the world is confused because they view the season of, uh, well, December as pre-Christmas, but we in the Christian church view it as Advent. And that's why, if you notice, we won't sing any Christmas hymns until uh, here until December 24th. And then we're going to hammer them. You know, we're going to sing as many of the hymns in the hymnal as we can. So you may not sing all your favorites a couple of times because I want to sing. Because you only have Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and the two Sundays after Christmas. And then we're in the Epiphany already. Uh, so going back to Irene's question too, you know, Advent is penitential of repent. So to prepare for Jesus coming. So then you can be happy during Christmas. And so that's why, uh, especially the first, first two Sundays, maybe even the third Sunday in Advent are more penitential. And then the fourth one, uh, then that's when, that's when you start rejoicing, you know, now, because the fourth one, that's when you're preparing for Jesus coming in the manger. So the first Sunday in Advent is usually Jesus coming in the clouds. That was the readings last week here. So it's Advent him coming in the clouds. The second and third Sundays in Advent are readings about John the Baptist is Jesus coming in repentance for the kingdom of heaven is near him coming to us currently in word and sacrament. Then the fourth Sunday in Advent, because it's the closest to Christmas, that one's preparing you for Jesus Advent in the manger. So Advent isn't just about Jesus coming in the manger. It's him coming in the clouds coming in word and sacrament, coming in the manger. But those are all happy thoughts that Jesus is coming. I mean, for me, sure. they, it's, it always ends on a happy note that we know that the Christ child is coming. Right. And, and this is a great comfort. So that's why I've always thought of Advent as a Sure. Well, and I, I think that goes to tie it back into the text is we can be happy because he's coming, but the unbelievers aren't going to be. And then, but also knowing we better make ourselves ready. We got to get out of the Christian, the anti-Christian church. And the way to do that is repentance. All right. Should we go on to chapter 19? All right. Chapter 19. Uh, after these things, I heard what seemed to be the loud sound of an immense crowd in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just because he has corrupted the earth and her immorality and he has avenged his servant's blood and that was shed by your hand. A second time they said, Alleluia, her smoke goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures bowed down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. 
And from the throne came a voice that said, praise our God, all you his servants, and you who fear him, small and great. They heard what seemed to be the roar of a large crowd, or the roar of many waters, or the sound of loud rumblings of thunder, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, because the wedding of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready, and she was given bright, clean, fine linen to wear. In fact, the fine linen is the not guilty verdict pronounced on the saints. The angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. He also said to me, these are the true words of God. And I bowed down at his feet and worship to worship him. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who have the testimony about Jesus. Worship God for the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I saw heaven standing open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true and he judges and makes war in righteousness. His eyes are like blazing flames and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him which no one knows except he himself. He is also clothed in a garment that has been dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies in heaven which were clothed with white clean fine linen were following him on white horses. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron staff. He himself is going to trample the winepress of the fierce anger of the almighty God. On his garment and on his thigh, this name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I saw an angel standing in the sun and he called out with a loud voice to all the birds that were flying in the middle of the sky. He said, come gather together for God's great supper so that you can eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of military leaders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of the riders and the flesh of all people, both free and slave and small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. The beast was captured along with a false prophet who performed miracles on his behalf with which he deceived those who had deceived the mark of the beast and had worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that comes out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. All right, so beautiful picture language there. All right. So the judgment in verse two against the prostitute and her followers is just because she has persecuted God's people. And now she is receiving the same treatment she gave to God's people. So the sins of all people, including the worst enemies of God were paid for, paid for. So salvation was for them too, but they wanted nothing to do with it. So now they're going on their own way. Uh, the first three verses of chapter 19, why does the great multitude of God's people rejoice? Right. Think of what happened right after the children of Israel escaped Egypt. Now they're chased down by the Egyptian Pharaoh and his army. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through on dry ground with walls of water on their right and on their left. Pharaoh's chariots follow through. The waters come crashing down on them. And as the Israelites on the shore see the Pharaoh and his armies and the horses and the chariots floating. What do they do? What do the Israelites do on the shore? Rejoice. 
rejoice. They're singing dance. They're singing the song of Moses and the song of Miriam, which is much shorter. But they're rejoicing. Why would they rejoice? That seems kind of morbid. Yeah. Yeah. So the people are singing because God's people uh, have won. Uh, there, you know, I think of, I think this, you probably don't, but, you know, at the end of the first Star Wars movie, since we referenced that before, you know, the first Star Wars movie, uh, after the, you know, the Death Star is destroyed, Darth Vader's, he goes flying off, uh, his TIE fighter is, is spinning. And then how does the movie end? Do you remember? You've seen Star Wars, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, so the movie ends as they're on the they're on a planet, and then Princess Leia is uh, presenting medals and putting around uh, the necks of the heroes of uh, Chewbacca. Chewbacca and Han Solo and Luke Skywalker, and then there's music. Or think of the third movie, kind of similar. The new Death Star has been destroyed. And now, but now it's rejoicing in the Ewok village, okay? Or the end of Lord of the Rings. So over, you know, three books or three movies, the same kind of thing after you've, uh, if they, they've defeated Saruman or Sauron, uh, you know, the, the big eye. They've defeated him and his orcs and orakai. You guys don't even know any of this stuff, but they've defeated, and that, again, there's rejoicing. Any of those movies where there is, you know, the big baddies are defeated, then there's rejoicing. And that's what is pictured here. You guys gotta watch my movies. Uh, what, verse four, what do the elders and the living creatures? All right, we're gonna go on to verse four. Uh, he must have too much time on this. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, Belle, Belle the other day, so this is like homecoming. She gets really into their dress-up days. And so their last day for homecoming, it was gold and black, you know, the colors. And so I took my hand and I put it in paint, and yellow paint, and put it on her forehead like this. And I said, do you know what that's for? She no. And I had explained the orakai in Lord of the Rings that Saruman places his hand that they belong, they belong to Saruman, the evil wizard. And he said, you belong to me. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, verse four. What do the elders and the living creatures say in response to this? Amen. Alleluia. Praise the Lord. It shall be so. They are in agreement. Verse six. What does the multitude say in response? Yes. So the, the multitude is rejoicing, praising God in his reign, anticipating what? What are they looking forward to? Yeah, but what are they looking forward to now? The war is done. It lasts an hour. Yeah, and that, but it's, it's pictured as the wedding feast of the Lamb. Think of 
this and this is one of the the prayers that was retained from the Christian worship red hymnal to the Christian worship blue hymnal. So you'll use it again this Sunday. We'll use the exact same service for uh, several months as we get used to it. But the prayer that we pray right after communion is about thanking God for the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's a prayer that's 500 years old. That's why we keep using it because Martin Luther wrote that. We've just tasted the foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is the Feast of Victory, one of the Easter hymns too. Now, uh, but it's a foretaste of what we're going to be invited to in heaven. And when you go to, when you come to Arlene's funeral on Wednesday morning, Psalm 23, think of that. The last, you know, the first few verses, we like using that because it's a picture of the good shepherd out in the field. But in the last few verses, the picture changes now we as saints are no longer lambs in the good shepherd's care. Now we are invited guests at the wedding feast of the lamb, okay, that the table is set before us and so forth. Uh, so verse seven, then the vision is using the wedding, the metaphor of a wedding supper with Christ as a groom, who is the bride churches. And this is picturing the eternal companionship that we have with our Savior in heaven. And I don't want you to miss this. Why is the picture of us as a bride the opposite of the way the anti-church was pictured in verse 18, chapter 18? We're the bride because we're the true church. The false church is pictured as a prostitute. So don't miss that. Okay, uh, that, that's kind of, that's a powerful thing that, uh, you know, she, she said, I didn't cover this in the last chapter, but it says she, she's no widow. She doesn't have, she's single. She's a prostitute. She doesn't have a husband. We do. Our husband is Jesus. So that's how this all is intertwined too. Uh, in this, and then in chapter, or verse eight, we're told how God gives us white robes to wear. He declares us righteous because of what Christ has done. We're giving uh, not guilty verdicts. Uh, fine linens, not guilty. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. So when we're re <clears throat> reading the first part of this, it sounds like the end of the world. But then when we got in the second part, got the uh, armies of the earth gathered together to make war so the first part's not the end of the world yet or... yeah and it, it kind of goes back and forth too so you're caught up in the time yeah uh, but i want you to understand this imagery of the of the marriage in verse nine too because think of your wedding okay you know, that you, you were engaged. How long were you guys engaged before you got married? Forever. How long was it forever? Okay, oh, that makes sense. Green? No? Okay. Wow. 
Yeah. So we were, in, we were in, we dated for nine months and engaged for nine months, but you had that engagement and then the wedding and what's all in the wedding day. You got your, your wedding, right? Then you got your party. It's all the same day. So you got to get rid of that idea when you're looking at weddings in the, in the new Testament, in the Bible, because what this is talking about here is, uh, the wedding in a, in a Jewish culture, it was very different than the way we do it. So you had your engagement, your betrothal, like we're coming up with Mary and Joseph, that they were engaged to be married. And then Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant and he wants to divorce her quietly. So they were in their, their culture, even though they weren't married, they were married. Okay, they didn't have the ceremony, but because of the promise, the engagement, they were married. But then they, but then you have that long time and then you have the wedding. But the wedding uh, and the wedding feast, uh, you know, is later. So according to marriage customs reflect in the Bible, there's an interval between the betrothal, the signing of the marriage contract and the wedding feast, right? So there's, you got, you're kind of legally married, your betrothal. Then you have the ceremony and then the, uh, the wedding ceremony, the, the party. You know, think of the Matthew 25 of the wedding feast where the bridegroom is late in coming. So for us, we're in the betrothal here. Christ has engaged himself to us. But when is the wedding feast? End of time. That's the wedding feast. So even though we're married to Christ, he's our bride, bridegroom, and we're the bride, the, the party isn't until later because it follows not our American wedding customs. It's following Jewish customs. You get that? Okay. Because otherwise, we're married to Christ. We're going, where's our party? Because we got married to Christ in our baptism, but we haven't had the party yet. And that's because the party is following Jewish customs it's later. All right, going to the second part of this vision. The rider on a white horse. Who is this? It's got to be Jesus. Because he's got his titles. Verse 13, the word of God. Uh, verse 16, the king of kings. So this description of him echoes earlier pictures in Revelation and the Old Testament. And notice that uh, John, John sees uh, Jesus and his, uh, and his army ready to do battle. But what we're going to see is, you know, his, the saints and the angels, they don't really do the battle. He just does it all. Uh, you can look at Psalm 45. We won't do that for sake of time today. But you can see Christ in Psalm 45 as a groom and warrior. Uh, verse 13, Jesus' robe is stained with blood. This is really important to understand uh, this part of the vision. Whose blood is his robe stained with? It's not his. It's not ours. What's that? Babylon's. Babylon's blood. His enemy's blood. So it's not the blood he shed on the cross for us. It's his enemy's blood. 
Why is that an important part for understanding this vision? You know, a robe dipped in blood, it says in verse 13. Shows who's the conqueror. Yeah, he's the conqueror. Uh, if you're watching, you know, some of these violent movies, the other night I watched, I wouldn't let Belle watch this one. Uh, I texted Miriam to see if she wanted to watch it, but Belle's too young. I wouldn't let her watch uh, the second Suicide Squad movie. It's just, it's just uh, graphic violence or John Wick movies or any of these kind of movies, you know, lots, lots of violence, they find creative ways of killing people, but you're getting bloody as you're killing people. That's the picture here. Jesus is the wine press of his wrath. He is uh, coming down hard with his wrath on the prostitute and the rest of her allies, which are our enemies. And he's covered with blood. Or think of Mel Gibson. He had, he had a run of two movies in a row of uh, Braveheart and then The Patriot. Kind of the same movie, except different settings, right? One is he's freeing uh, America from, well, yeah, there's a really, you know, that just came into my head, uh, a really important scene in, um, in The Patriot that uh, Mel Gibson's character doesn't want to get into, he's a religious man, he doesn't want to get into the, uh, the Revolutionary War until he finds out that uh, the British had killed his son. Okay, and then he, he's, and they've captured his, his children. And so he's got his tomahawks and that is a bloody scene. And he's, and he's covered in red coats blood. That's, that's the image here. Okay. Uh, so he's pictured as bloody, but what are the saints pictured as? What are they wearing? <laughs> So they're in white, clean linen. He's in white, but he's covered with blood. What is that telling you about who's fighting? He is. He is. We as the saints, we're off just watching. Kind of like those kids in the Patriot. You know, we're just watching. And Jesus is going crazy. Okay? He is wiping out our enemies. So what impression does this section give us of Jesus? Because we'll sing in just a few weeks, Jesus, meek and mild, you know, our holy child, no crying he makes. Is that the picture of Jesus you have here? Nope, the warrior. The warrior. <laughs> For us. He is no longer a humble servant. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm thinking of all these movies, but uh, this isn't, yeah, Jamie's going to say, Pastor, do you do stuff? Uh, oh yeah, I can't think of the name of the movie, but uh, it's a race car driver, Bobby. But at, at dinner, he pray. They want to pray to Jesus, and they he prays. Well, do we pray to the grown up Jesus or the baby Jesus? And he said, "I like the baby Jesus better." Well, this is not the baby Jesus. This is the glorious warrior Jesus. He comes to judge his enemies. Uh, and we are his people that he is coming to vindicate. Is there a comedy with Will Ferrell? That's the movie, yeah. Oh, 
Yeah, Talladega Nights. It's yeah. Yeah, who's the who's the actor in it? Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell yeah, Bobby something. Uh, that was a long time ago. I haven't seen that movie in years. So okay, uh, it's just these things just come to me. Uh, verse sixteen. This battle is essentially the same battle as the Battle of Armageddon in chapter sixteen, and it's the battle at Jerusalem at the end of chapter twenty. So again, it's just different angles of the same battle. Uh, again, think of think of movies. Again, Lord of the Rings. You're following Frodo and in uh, the in the Hobbits. But you're also following Aragorn. You're following Gandalf. But it's all these same battles, but different places. Or Star Wars, and you've got uh, Luke Skywalker and his X-wing fighter. You've got the rest of the Rebel fighters. You've got it inside the Death Star. All or uh, or on. Uh, Endor, Ewoks, you've got all these three different battles all at the same time to complete it. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing Battle of Armageddon in chapter 12. It's the same battle, or uh, was it 16? And now it's an angle from Jesus and another angle from chapter 20. So it's not three different battles. And I thought this is an interesting uh, concept or parallel that I would not have put together either. Just like you see Jesus being the groom and we being the bride of the true church and the prostitute being the false church. Now you see two different banquets, don't you? I had not picked up on that. You have one banquet for us as a saint. What's the second, second banquet? The last verses of chapter 19. It's a banquet for the birds. Yeah. Again, this is this is a parallel vision to Ezekiel 38 and 39. So you can watch that read that on your own. It's not a pretty picture. So we uh I'm reading this and it says the armies gather together to make war. So we're interpreting this as Jesus is actually coming down to the earth. Yeah. Yeah. In the form of, in his form, he's actually coming down and wiping out all these right. on earth. Yep. So people can watch it happen. And <coughs> it might happen so fast that. Great. Yeah, and it's going to be a, a bloody one. Uh, this is, this is christ's love and justice people wonder how can god be both loving and just at the same time well here you see it he's loving to us but he's demonstrating his justice well these armies you know if they're on the planet earth and they're they're gathered together and we see jesus coming out of this you know with a way worth with his sword and they kind of go like whoa yep. you know and like we're done yep and they're gonna know that there's no way we're gonna win this one we could shoot all our nuclear missiles at it if we want to. And they gotta work. But that, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you know, we're actually, he's actually coming down. Yep, that, 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 you can't defeat him. Again, you watch any of these, you know, now the big thing is the last decade or so, these superhero movies Superman, Justice League for DC, or Thor, and so forth, or Captain Marvel with the Marvel movies. And then the forces just, you can't do anything against them. They're like, Gods. So, you know, you talk about the late great planet Earth, but where there's nuclear bombs, everybody blowing each other up. 
Is he going to answer? Do we picture this as him coming down himself to they see him, or like an army from America, you know, that's Christian army going in and is it going to be a battle? I don't think it's going to be battle. I think it's him coming down because it's pictured elsewhere in Judgment Day that Judge, you know, he comes. It's not going to be a battle between nations. No. That's it. That's it. Yep. That's the way I've always pictured it. That's it. I think he's putting it in picture language of a battle for us. So the last question. uh, So what are we prompted to do in view of the horrible destruction of the two beasts? What do we need to be doing? Because we know that in the end, Christ is victorious over the two beasts that are persecuting Christians. We need to be on the right side. We need to be on the right side, yeah. To be on the right side, what does that mean we need to be doing? Preparing. And how do we prepare? Pray. 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 Repent. Repent. Study. Study God's word. Believe. Believe. And then... Uh, you'll hear you heard this Wednesday night. Recruit. You know, keep keep recruiting. The people out there are lost, and they may not want to be saved. Yeah. So uh, you know, yeah. Last thing is, I think of Lydia. Uh, Lydia, a couple of weeks ago, had her worldview class uh, at University of Dubuque. And Shelly and I told her when she had that class assigned to her is we were concerned about that because it's worldview. It's not gonna be a Christian worldview. It's a worldview class. Uh, And yet she said there hasn't been anything uh, bad in it, but she was given the opportunity with the rest of the students to give a five minute presentation in the front of the class on what do you believe about afterlife? Is there an afterlife? So she took that very seriously and she laid out, uh, you know, she was a Lutheran and she laid out the five solas of we're saved by grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And then, uh, you know, more about Jesus and the afterlife. She said she wished she had more than five minutes. Because I know I tell people this too. Mark Twain said something to this effect of, if you want me to talk for an hour, you know, just tell me. Do you want me to talk for 10 minutes? Give me a week, you know, cause it's a lot harder to have something very tight. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, if you want me to get up and talk for an hour for Bible study, it's not that hard. You want me to get up and talk for 15 minutes in a sermon? Yeah. Give me 15 hours. Right. Uh, but she said, you know, she had a couple of classmates talk to her afterwards about being Lutheran because she and I talked about it is, that may be the only opportunity some of her classmates have to hear about Jesus. So she I was took. Going to ask how it was accepted. Yeah, she said uh, she did have one student that asked. She was, you know, I'm Catholic, and uh, what does it mean to be Lutheran? And then, yeah, I don't know more than that. We haven't talked more about it, but that's that's an opportunity. God puts those opportunities in front of us, so uh, let's make use of them. Interesting to know how to yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll finish this up here.